It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. Since we're currently in between seasons, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another Appreciation Week, and this particular week is dedicated to a true legend, one Mr. Tim Curry. So once upon a time, I had a blog, and it was called The Gnoming Librarian. I have tried many a creative outlet, and the blog was a lot of fun for a while. It did stress me out after some time. It was a lot of book reviews. There were some lists as well, uh, but I wasn't reading fast enough to be consistent with the reviews. So then I started adding some not-so-deep philosophical musings about the destruction of the white picket fence at my old house and what that meant, like I was giving away the idea of the American dream for my own dream. It was really... It was something. Uh, and then I let the domain name lapse, and now it's a porn site. So yeah, please don't go looking up the Gnoming Librarian. It is very awkward, to say the least. But one Valentine's Day, I decided to write an ode to Tim Curry for the blog. There has always been something about his comedy that has just tickled my funny bone. There's a sweetness to him that is just irresistible, whether he's dressing up as a 1930s con man in Annie, singing with Carol Burnett and Bernadette Peters, as a transvestite from transsexual Transylvania in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, or as a professor of elocution that recognizes when someone has a dangling participle in Oscar. And to top it all off, not only does he star in one of my favorite movies of all time, Clue, he also has a cameo in one of my favorite television shows of all time, Psych. He's done it all, and I love him. I had thought about doing a list of my favorite Tim Curry performances today and then a deep dive on Friday, but I love too many of his films, so I've decided to do double features for each day. If you're not a Tim Curry fan, that's okay. I don't understand you, but that's okay. To each their own. I hope you'll join me soon for season four of the podcast in a conversation about romantic comedies. But if you have the right kind of sense of humor and an appreciation for the legend, I'd love to hear your thoughts about some of your favorite Tim Curry roles. Here are a few of mine. Today, we're talking about Oscar, the 1991 comedy also starring Sylvester Stallone, Marissa Tomei, and Vincent Spano, and a movie that will forever, forever live in my top four favorites of all time, 1985's Clue, which also stars Christopher Lloyd, who I also wrote a note about one Valentine's Day, Madeline Kahn, and Michael McKean. And proving once again that Psych is one of the best TV shows ever, they had an entire episode which spoofed the cult classic movie and included appearances by Christopher Lloyd and Leslie Ann Warren. It was genius. So we're going to kick it off talking about Oscar. It's, it's not a widely beloved movie, which makes no sense to me. I think you say the name Sylvester Stallone and most people doubt that it's a comedy, but in my humble opinion, it is actually a great one. So on his father's deathbed, Ma boss Angelo snaps Provolone, played by Stallone. He, he's promising to go straight. He's going to give away his criminal ways, and that's no easy feat. He's got the feds spying on him and other mob families worried that he's going to make a move, whatever that means. But Snaps decides to walk away from crime, much to the chagrin of his henchmen, and become a banker, much to the chagrin of the bankers. But on the big day when he makes the career move, nothing goes quite as planned. So there are three main plots to the movie. Number one, Snaps discovers that his accountant, Antony, has been embezzling money and wants to marry his daughter. Snaps' daughter, not his own daughter. That would be weird. Turns out it's not actually his daughter, Snaps' daughter, that he's loved with, but a girl named Teresa who just told Antony she was the mob boss's daughter to impress him. She didn't come from money. She's quite poor. He's working for a 
very rich, prominent mob boss. So he has lots of money. Uh, and she didn't think that she could have a relationship with him if she didn't have any money. So, but Antony, he doesn't know this. He still thinks Teresa is Snaps' daughter. So Snaps plans to use this little tidbit to get his money back. Number two, Antony decides to turn the $50,000 he embezzled into gems, which he stores in a leather bag. The bag gets inadvertently passed to just about everyone in the movie at one time or another in several unintentional switcheroos with a different bag. And number three, Snaps' real daughter, Lisa, wants a life of adventure and to get out from under the thumb of her father. So at one point, she's engaged to the mob boss's former chauffeur, Oscar. They named the whole movie after Oscar, who's in the movie for literally like half a second. Antony, she's engaged to Antony at one point, and finally Dr. Thornton Poole, but we'll get back to him in a minute. So over the course of the single day, Snaps is trying to get Lisa married because she's tricked him into thinking she's pregnant. She wants to get out of the house. She doesn't think he's going to let her. So she's like, oh, no, you have to let me marry Oscar at the time. We didn't know it was Oscar because I'm pregnant. He's trying to get a suit made by two Italian tailors so he looks presentable to the bankers. He's trying to get his money back from Annie. He's trying to get his home life figured out when he discovers that, spoiler, Teresa, the fake daughter, is actually the real daughter. And he's trying to keep his henchmen, his posse, his boys, his crew. I don't know what to call a mob boss's dude. He's basically trying to keep them from their criminal ways by constantly taking away weapons. And they are packed to the gills. They have things hidden that you're like, why are you carrying that around? I know, this is sounding like the Sylvester Stallone show. And he is the main character, but Curry st- steals absolutely every scene he is in as Professor Thornton Poole. Told you we would get back to him. So Poole shows up as Snaps' elocution teacher, you know, to improve the gangster's diction so that he sounds like a banker and not a low-life mob boss. It's quite the task, especially when you have to deal with Sylvester Stallone's accent. When we first meet him, he's able to immediately determine that Antony, the embezzling accountant, is from New Jersey by his accent. So it's a little bit like an a la Henry Higgins from My Fair Lady. And then Poole gets pretty offended when the accountant suggests he should work at carnivals because he was really impressed by the trick. That's when Antony, who is kind of temporarily engaged to Lisa at that point after Teresa runs out mad that he's more invested in getting the bag of jewels back instead of her. Antony gets the idea that Dr. Poole should marry Lisa since she went on and on and on about wanting to travel during their five-minute meeting when Snaps threw them together. And Dr. Poole travels a lot for work. So Antony then goes and convinces Lisa that Dr. Poole is actually madly in love with her, and in turn, she convinces her father she's madly in love with Dr. Poole, who has no idea this is going on. Provolone goes in for his elocution lesson, where Poole pulls out a baton like an orchestra conductor would use to help the gangster through a tongue twister. At one point, he says the tongue twister proud of himself, Poole does, and then he pops it in his mouth and gets all excited. This this expression on his face is just beautiful, waiting for the mob boss to say it back to him. Well, that doesn't go well. So then Poole creates a tongue twister about a rum runner that is more in taste to the mob boss's former line of work. It does work, uh, and they both get very excited. That's when Snaps springs it on Poole that he would like him to marry Lisa. The professor is obviously shocked, but Provolone offers him some money. And I just have to throw in that Poole refers to Angelo Snaps Provolone as Provolone. (laughs) 
which is wonderful. So Snaps is like, well, if I give you some money, what do you, what are your dreams, Poole? What, what would you do? I'm giving you this money. And Poole says he wants to take his mother to Baden-Baden because there is a doctor there doing amazing things with gallbladders. And he'd like to also start his own linguistics school. So by the end of this movie, this kind of goofy elocution professor who does not fit into this group of roughnecks at all has won himself a fiance and a trip to Bon Bon with his mother in a linguistic school. So for at least one person in the movie, things to her out pretty great. I'm going to spoil just a little bit of you. Snaps in the end decides that his it's not worth his trouble to become a banker. He's better off a mobster. You need to watch it. It's hilarious. So why do I like Tim Curry's role so much in this? Well, Poole is so refined compared to the Provolone family. Shockingly, he has it off with these people that he has he has nothing in common with. He's goofy and sweet and, and way over his head. He brings the right moments of Tim Curry just has perfect comedic timing. And there's just a whimsy about him that I just find so very appealing. Oscar is a madcap comedy with a charm and good-natured human humor. Poole also says, you have a dangling participle, with a ridiculous grin on his face at one point, which as far as I'm concerned was an Oscar, see what I did there, worthy performance. If you have not seen Oscar, I, I highly recommend it. Is it one of his most well-known roles? No, it is not. Is it his finest role? I would not even go there. But does he just own it and have fun with it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So a few interesting tidbits about the movie. This was the first feature to be shot at the MGM Disney Studios in Orlando, Florida. The movie was based on the 1958 French play Oscar by uh, Claude Manier. I that's a, a French name. I don't speak French, but M-A-G-N-I-E-R. Manier? I don't know. The club where Antony Rosano the accountant, played by Vincent Spano, tells Angelo Snaps Provolone, of course, played by Sylvester Stallone, that he had, he met his daughter, uh, which was actually Teresa, not Lisa, is called Club 33, which, of course, is a real private club hidden in Disneyland. So there's just a few fun facts about him. So that that is Oscar. And without any ado, we'll just we'll dive in to the second movie. So now, Clue. It is one of my absolute favorites. I, I cannot even begin to tell you how many times I have watched this movie. It is one of those movies that if it's on TV, I will sit down and watch it no matter where in the movie it is, and I will follow it through to the end. It's also one I love to have on in the background as I'm like cleaning or or doing something crafty, I don't know, because I don't need to pay complete attention to it because I know it so well. So in this one, Curry plays Wadsworth, a butler who greets six strangers to a creepy mansion on a very rainy night for a dinner party. They each received identical invitations to meet the host, Mr. Body, that it would be in their and that it would be in their best interest to do so. So when he finally arrives, Mr. Body, it is discovered that each of these individuals, these strangers, are being blackmailed. Each have connections to the government and each have something to hide. They all convene in the library after dinner where they were eating monkey's brains, where Wadsworth then reveals that they are each being blackmailed before naming their offenses one by one. So all of the secrets are out in the open. And then Wadsworth reveals that Mr. Body is the one blackmailing them. His response to give them all weapons, because that seems smart, but kind of uncouth weapons, except for a gun and a knife. There's a a rope for hanging a, a candlestick, which 
ends up being a very decent weapon, but I don't know if that would be my go-to. Um, there's the lead pipe, there, it, a wrench, another one that I don't think, hey, I'm just going to go grab this heavy wrench would probably make an excellent weapon. It just would not come to my head to do. Um, he suggests to kill Wadsworth um, because he's the one that is trying to expose everything. Turns out Wadsworth was the one that sent out the invitations. Body su suspected that he was meeting his victims, so he came prepared. He turns out the light expecting someone to kill the butler to keep their secrets, but he's shot instead. And that is the first murder of the evening. What ensues is a hunt to find the killer before the police arrive, because the police are coming in 30 minutes. Wadsworth tells them that his wife was being blackmailed as well, and he thought that if you brought everyone together, they could turn, they could confront body and his crimes and then turn him over to the police. Five others will die before the end of the evening while our dinner party crew, Colonel Mustard, Miss Scarlet, Mr. Green, Professor Plum, Mrs. Peacock, and Mrs. White scour the house and search for the killer. And I'm going to stop um, the summary there just in case you haven't seen it. I know I spoiled a lot with Oscar, but it's not that mystery kind of feel. This one, if you haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil the end for you. How it's possible that you haven't seen this, I'm not sure. But I'm going to trust that you're going to do it. So I just don't want to ruin things for you. So why is Tim Curry so great in this movie? In some ways, he's the narrator almost. He's the revealer of the plot. He's also kind of almost the emotional core because he knows so much about the other people because he revealed their secrets um, that they kind of turn to him for answers. And he leads the dinner party through separate potential endings in this manic hilarious way. There are three different endings. That is my favorite part of watching the DVD. I know when they released the movie uh, that th there was only one ending that was shown at different theaters, but I just, I love seeing the different plots and how they all kind of could have worked. He goes from desperate and terrified to conniving in the blink of an eye yet remains the proper butler through it all it's like what does a butler do sir i buttle <laughs> this is it's definitely an ensemble cast one of the best i've seen but it's really curry that holds it all together it's also one of the most quotable films are there always appropriate times to use the quotes no not always but that doesn't matter um some examples of I had to stop her screaming, or I didn't do it, or it's you and me, honey bunch. Uh, one I do use a lot, especially as I'm yelling at the computer and taking the fact that my Excel formula is um, not working the way I want. I usually say, this is war, peacock, because I take it too personally. Uh, I'm just going to keep going because it's, it's literally my favorite part of the movie is the quote. So there's this one scene where Wadsworth, um, he's, he's, has gotten agitated. He, somebody else has died. I'm not going to spoil that. And so he goes, that's why we're, what we're trying to find out. We're trying to find out who killed him and where and with what. And Professor Plum, played by Christopher Lloyd, says, there's no need to shout. And then Wadsworth, shouting louder, goes, I'm not shouting. And then he, all right, I'm shouting. I'm shouting. I'm shouting. And then a candlestick falls from top of a door jam and hits him in the head and he falls down it's great one more one more and i did discover in the interesting tidbits that this was all improv and i do use this one a lot as well usually um when i get a call from a family member a beloved family member who is usually uh my father needing tech help and it's usually because he cannot remember passwords and so mrs white who has been accused of killing her husband 
it says at one point about the maid. Oh, I don't want to say that part. Um, I'll, I'll skip that part. I'll skip a part of it. And then she said, I hated her so much. It's the f it's flame flames flames on the side of my face, breathing breath, heaving breaths, heaving breaths, heaving. And, and it just, the way she does that, her hand gestures near her face, the way that she cannot say the words because she is so agitated because she hates this woman. Ah, uh, I just, you gotta watch it. You gotta watch it for the quotes alone. So that that is clue. He's he's brilliant. He is brilliant in it. And the way again, the way he kind of carefully leads all of the characters and the viewers through the movie is just beautiful. Interesting tidbits. He has said Tim Curry has said that this is what this was one of his favorite movies of his own, which I love that. Now, of course, it's the first movie based on a board game, which is awesome. Um, there were three endings shot and a different one shown at each theater. All three are included on the video. The DVD, however, aside from all the three endings, also offers the option to play the movie with one randomly selected ending, but I don't know why you would do that. So they were known as like ending A, ending B, and ending C, and they had hoped that people would want to come to the movie multiple times to see the different endings but apparently that didn't happen. It wasn't the box office success that they had hoped for, but it of course has gotten a cult cult following since. Um, this I found fascinating. The color of each character's car is the same color as their playing piece in the game. So they did so many little elements like that. Uh, and it's introduced as follows. So Colonel Mustard drives a yellow 1954 Cadillac Series 62. Mrs. White drives a black and white 1950 MGTD convertible. I know nothing about cars. I'm just going to say this. They were all cool colors. <laughs> Mrs. Peacock drives a blue 1952 Packard 200 Deluxe Club sedan. Mr. Green drives a green 1951 Plymouth Cranbrook. Ms. Scarlet drives a 1946 Red Lincoln Continental and a professor and a professor. And Professor Plum tries a purple 1949 Pontiac Streamliner station wagon. And so after um, I kind of put all this on, I did the interesting tidbits before I did my rewatch, which I rewatch all the time, but I finally noticed the cars and I just thought that was brilliant. In an example of attention to detail too, the secret passages in this movie lead to the same rooms they do in the board game. The kitchen leads to the study and the conservatory leads to the lounge. And of course, the movie spoofs many Agatha Christie tropes. Guests invited to a dinner at a spooky old mansion by a mysterious host, bodies piling up one by one, with one of the guests being the murderer, every character connected to the victim in some way, everyone with a motive. So if you have read And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie, it should feel pretty familiar. And if you haven't read that, you absolutely should. Or listen to the audiobook. I do believe this fabulous narrator, Hugh Fraser, reads it uh, and it's it's worth a listen but that is it for today never fear i'll be back on friday with uh one more dose of pure tim curry admiration to discuss 1985's legend and 1993's the three musketeers thank you so much for listening really it is so appreciated if you haven't already i hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together and if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like random conversations about pop culture with someone who just really doesn't know what they're talking about can join the fun as well. Or if you want to share the podcast, that would be awesome too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as A Bit of Fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today and I will see you next time.